Hello and welcome to Definitions, the podcast where we crack the lid of the coffin on death, dying, and all the morbid morsels in between. Before we go any further, halt and take heed. These are your words of warning. I will be discussing topics of a deathly nature that may be upsetting to some, including death by drowning and, um, dancing. If you're not in the right headspace to get down and dirty with the maggots today, then that's fine. I totally get it. Sometimes you'd rather dig into cake and a good romance novel than a freshly dug grave. Now's your time to save yourself. If you're still here, I'll assume you've got your shovels at the ready. Because today, I'm asking the question, what is Memento Mori? According to the Cambridge English Dictionary, Memento Mori is defined as something which reminds people that everyone must die. And the classic example they give is of a painting which features a human skull, a fairly universal symbol of death. We cannot see the smooth rounded bone of the skull, either ours or anyone else's, unless that person has already passed. Or something has gone terribly, horribly wrong. But even if you're a surgeon who specialises in procedures that mean revealing parts of the skull, there's no way to see the whole thing while someone is still alive. In Hamlet, the skull of poor Yorick is raised single-handedly as a bleak and poignant representation of all that we leave behind when we shuffle off this mortal coil. Throughout the play, Hamlet, our depressed emo protagonist, toys with the idea and importance of mortality and is brought face to face with it in several ways. The murder of his father, the suicide of Ophelia, but none stares him quite so solidly in the face as Yorick's blank and empty eye sockets. During David Tennant's run as the titular Hamlet on the West End, the skull they used for Yorick was not a prop at all, but one that had come from a genuine human head. This particular cranium belonged to musician and composer Andrei Tchaikovsky. It was discovered upon his death in 1982 that, although he had left his body to medical science, Tchaikovsky had left his skull to the Royal Shakespeare Company. It took 27 years before it was used in a theatre production, with Tennant being the first Hamlet to lament his woes to it. This, of course, produced outrage amongst some circles, but in my opinion, if this is what the composer wanted for his remains, why not? He's not got much use for it anymore. But Memento Mori is not restricted to images of grinning, toothy skulls. If you studied art while still at school, you may be familiar with the imagery of still life, rotting fruit, and decaying flowers also utilised in an effort to make us ponder our mortal existences. Alternatively, if you enjoy a good graveyard wonder, you may have noticed certain symbols that tend to crop up on old gravestones. Skulls, hourglasses, crossbones, angels with cherubim faces, all designed to help us remember that our time on this earth is finite, and one day, we too, maybe lying six feet under a headstone just like that. Well, only if you're very rich. Stone carving is not cheap these days. 
Upon entering one of those old graveyards, everywhere you look is designed to say, you are going to die. No matter your wealth, your health, or your religion, this is non-negotiable. One of the most famous depictions of Memento Mori is the Dance Macabre, or Dance of Death, usually pictured as a host of skeletons leading the living hand in hand to their fate. The world's most morbid conga line, if you will. The earliest known depiction of the Dance of Death dates back to around 1470 and was depicted on the wall of a charnel house in the Cimetière de Innocent in Paris where bones were stored after being dug up so that the grave space may be recycled. These etched and painted sequences featured people from all classes of society, from the Pope to the pauper. The skeletons who led them, sometimes herded in groups, are telling us that regardless of how we may be perceived by the world, we are all equal in death. You will be stripped of your station, your possessions, even your skin until you are nothing but bleached bone. It's all about perspective, really. Of course, these artworks carried with them the moralizing of the artist and the period of history in which they were created. Going back to what I said earlier about macabre conga lines, there was also a musical element to the dance of death, especially back in the medieval and early modern period where most people couldn't read the easiest way to spread stories would be to set them to a common tune and hope that there would be at least one person in the village who could read and would be able to lead the rest in a jaunty, morbid tune about mortality. A French dance of death created by Jean-Antoine Garnier in 1728 featured verse upon verse of conversation between death and the mortals he came to collect. Some begging for their lives, others accepting their fate with grace. Whether printed in a book or sculpted by hand, depictions of the dance macabre, our ever-revolving relationship with our own finite lives, were often portrayed as an interaction. The skeleton that has turned up to highlight the fact that where there is life, death is never far, can often be found engaging with the living in ways that are corporeal, whether through physical touch or, in one instance, a game of dice. We, the viewer, are not just reminded of the brevity of our own lives, but that the decisions we make and the ways we choose to live are informed by this fact as much as any material thing around us. I find spending time with this kind of artwork somewhat humbling. It can be cheeky and amusing, or dark and frightening, but always illuminating. In Hans Holbein's version of The Dance Macabre, what's noticeable is the insistent, almost impatient air of death's bony mascots. With their skeletal hands, they pull people by their hoods, their feet, they drive us on, take us by the hand, snag our robes, even appear under our feet holding aloft hourglasses that count down the grains of our lives. In Holbein's vision, death has momentum and agency, pushing us onward towards the inevitable. And yes, this is the same guy who spent hour upon hour painting the visages of the most powerful people of 16th century Europe so that royalty could try and find out what their potential spouses would look like before they met them. Imagine being on Tinder 
and having to wait weeks on end just to receive your potential bow's profile pick. And of course, the Tudors might not have had Facetune back in the day, but what is a painter to the king for other than to hide the royal blemishes? Famously, this somewhat backfired in the case of Henry VIII's marriage to Anne of Cleves, who he divorced on the basis that she was much uglier than her portrait had shown. Essentially, he claimed he was catfished, Tudor style. There were, of course, other factors that impacted their separation, including the fact that Henry was seemingly unable to um, consummate the marriage four consecutive nights in a row. And after six months of struggles in the bedroom, he gave up entirely and blamed it on the fact that Anne just wasn't pretty enough to get little Henry going. As the marriage was technically never consummated, it was allowed that the marriage would be annulled. So perhaps Holbein's portrait wasn't that far off the mark and poor Anne simply bore the brunt of Henry's impotence and embarrassment. Of course, considering who she married, it really could have ended a lot worse. But the dance of death is not only found in dusty tombs and on mausoleum walls. There is, in fact, historical tellings of a real dance that lasted for two months and left more than 50 people dead. The Dancing Plague of 1518 started much as it would go on, suddenly and with much gusto. The city of 16th century Strasbourg at the time of this mysterious illness was a part of the Holy Roman Empire, but today sits on the far east of France at the German border. Not a great deal is known about the Dancing Plague, but it reportedly started when a local woman, Frau Trophea, stepped out of her house into the street and began to twist and move her body to a music only she could hear. Her limbs shook and her feet pounded a disturbing rhythm into the ground. Frau Trophea wasn't just living life to the beat of her own drum, she was completely powerless to stop her body from moving. And whether the affliction was airborne, transferred by touch, or infectious in some other way, or if it was a placebo effect, before long, others started to succumb. They danced all day and throughout the night until their bodies gave out from sheer exhaustion. It's thought that as many as 400 people fell victim to the epidemic. It went on so long that local authorities erected a stage and brought together a band to play music. Nothing was working to cure those afflicted and the best advice that doctors of the day could give was to simply keep going and sweat it out. This dancing mania was hardly the only to grip the people of Europe, but certainly it was the worst and the most well-documented. We'll never know the exact cause, but one possible explanation is as a psychological outlet for the people of Strasbourg, who have been suffering through extremely trying times. Sometimes, when your city is blighted by disease and famine, you just need to take a page out of Florence and the Machines book and shake it out. The human mind is a strange and fascinating thing. Many artistic depictions of the Dancing Plague are reminiscent of the Dance Macabre, where people join hands in a line and pull one another towards their demise. Sometimes the images explicitly merge the two, 
featuring skeletons amongst the writhing, anguished crowds. Though the Dancing Plague appeared to start out of nowhere, simply accompanying Frau Trofea out of her door and into the street, perhaps there were signs that were missed. Often, after a tragedy occurs, people will look back and make connections between certain events, becoming convinced that these were omens that something terrible was waiting in the wings. Much like the foreshadowing of descent into madness and resulting suicide of Hamlet's doomed lover, Ophelia. We as humans absolutely love to assign meaning to things. Whether it's an item imbued with the emotions of a cherished memory, a lucky rabbit's foot, the way we think our pets speak to us, or the five yellow cars we counted on the way to work today. We search for meaning everywhere. I suppose it's the side effect of humanity being so great at forming connections, but this can sometimes spill over and we see patterns or assign importance to things which are ultimately random. In a universe of infinite possibilities, it can be hard not to make these connections. There is one particular brand of experience, however, which is a little more disturbing. Death omens are events and sightings that foretell, or in some cases, bring about, the demise of ourselves or other people. Black cats have long been thought to herald death and tragedy. There is an old German superstition that if a black cat sits on the edge of a sick person's bed, that person will die. So if you've got a cold, be sure to shut the cat out of the bedroom. We've all heard that a black cat crossing our paths is bad luck, but unfortunately, the only ones these superstitions are bad news for is the cats themselves. Black cats are the least likely to be adopted and have even been hurt or worse for their apparent association with death and the devil. Seeing a murder of crows, no, seriously, that is what a group of crows is called, is supposed to herald the death of either yourself or someone you know, as is hearing an owl hooting at night, which, to be honest, seems pretty mean because owls are nocturnal. Personally, in the UK, I'd be a lot more trouble if I heard an owl hooting during the day. If you grew up in Ireland, you may have been raised on folklore of the Banshee, the spirit of a woman who screams and wails to foretell the death of a loved one. The law around black dogs is similar. Usually taking on the shape of a huge shaggy hound, black dogs are said to have demonic glowing red eyes and like their feline counterparts are connected to Satan and are omens of tragedy and imminent death. Some black dog spirits are said to be so deadly that to even gaze upon them is to seal your own fate. The strangest of all the death omens, however, is possibly the most human. It's said that we all have a doppelganger, someone out there who is identical to us in every way and who, should we see them, could spell the end of our days. Our planet is populated by over 7 billion people. In terms of likelihood, there probably is somewhere out there who looks just like us. Considering these numbers, our chance of meeting them, whilst not wholly impossible, is very slim. 
And there's one particularly strange report of this that I would like to tell you about. These days, we all know the name Mary Shelley. And if you don't, firstly, there's possibly something wrong with you. And secondly, you will undoubtedly have heard of her most famous creation, Frankenstein. But interesting as she is, I'm actually here to tell you about a different Shelley, her husband. Percy Bysshe Shelley was born on the 4th of August, 1972. Percy grew up heir to an affluent family and even stood to inherit his grandfather's seat in Parliament. He wrote beautiful romantic poetry and epitomised the stereotype of the brooding, restless and rebellious young prodigy. Edward Cullen who? These days, Percy is best known for who he was married to, the rumour that they got frisky on her mother's grave and his tragic death. At just 29 years old, after setting sail from the Italian coast to meet with friends, both Shelley and his friend Edward Williams would drown after their boat was capsized at sea during a storm. Mary would wait days for any sign of her husband, and 10 days after they first set sail, both men's bodies would be found washed up along the shoreline. According to Italian quarantine laws, the bodies had to be cremated. And so Shelley's friends built a pyre right there on the beach. Friends who included bisexual and all around badly behaved icon, Lord Byron. One of the friends plucked Shelley's heart from the flames. And though he tried to keep it for himself, was later persuaded to hand it over to Percy's now widow, Mary, who kept it with her until it was discovered, shriveled, and near unrecognisable, hidden amongst her belongings after her own death. And though this turn of events is very sad, it's not why I wanted to tell you this particular story today. See, on the 15th of August, a month after Percy Shelley had drowned, Mary wrote a letter to a close friend telling her that weeks before his death, Percy had visions visions of himself. Not only did he see himself, but he also had a conversation with himself. And not only did Percy see his doppelganger, but so did Jane Williams, the widow of the also drowned Edward Williams. Though straying into the territory of insult, Mary Shelley claimed that Jane had no imagination and thus would never have been able to conjure such a thing in her own mind. Did this doppelganger sighting foretell Percy Shelley's death? We'll never know for sure, but just in case, if you ever see yourself in public, it may be worth turning around and pretending you never saw anything at all. In our modern world, we like to think that it takes a bit more than black cats and skulls to scare us. But fundamentally, we are the same creatures as our ancestors who believed in banshees. In the West, we've gone so far in removing death that reminders of our mortality, should they be carved into modern gravestones, would probably be met with disgust and mutterings of bad taste. Modern medicine may have some of us convinced that we are going to live forever, but it's simply not true. 
At some point, we have to make peace with the fact that death comes for us all. And I, for one, would rather go hand in hand with that skeletal figure as opposed to kicking and screaming, pulled by the back of my shirt. Alas, these are choices that we are not always able to make. And I only hope that you, my lovely little gravediggers, are granted long lives and peaceful deaths. So, there you have it. A winding exploration of how visions of death in art and life have impacted the ways that we think about our mortality. If you are also a lover of the dark, the strange, and possibly of cursed literature, join me over on TikTok at Definitions, where I also chronicle and recommend all of my favorite morbid books. If you have any thoughts to share about the podcast or your own impending mortality, drop them in the comments. Reviews and ratings go a long way in helping to get this podcast out there, and I greatly appreciate the support. I want to tell you guys about all this weird stuff as much as you want to hear about it. The more you let me know you're out there listening, the more I'm inspired to delve into the depths of the internet and my local library to bring you these twisted tales. The Definitions podcast is researched, written and read by me, Jasper Chanter, with music provided by Zapsplat. Anyway, chop chop, breaks over, pick that shovel up. That grave's not going to dig itself. Bye bye for now, listeners. Catch you on the other side.